Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And on this episode, we are not covering a novel. We are, in fact, covering a short story. It is a Poirot short story. This is always a very happy event for us. We have still a few of these left. That is a wonderful thing. What are we discussing today, Catherine? I think short story might be, uh, you know, misnomer in this case, Kemper, but uh, we are covering the underdog, which our regular listeners will know that uh, it comes up once in a while when we talk about publication history because it is, in fact, the name of a collection and it is the titular story in it. Well, that is just a seamless segue into our publication history. Just keep on going. Sometimes do it okay, don't I, Kemper? You started hot on this episode, so just (laughs) go you. (laughs) So, yeah, publication history of this is like a bit weird. Don't you agree? A little unusual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was published uh, first in the U.S. in April of 1926 um, in Mystery Magazine and in the U.K. in the London Magazine um, in October of 1926. It was subsequently published in a book uh, called Two New Crime Stories, which is really innovative given that it was two new crime stories. But um, (laughs) that was in September of 1929. And then it was published by Dot Mead in the U.S. in The Underdog and Other Stories in 1951 and by Collins Crime in The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding in 1960. Right. So and a I, little odd. It's been published a lot <laughs> is really what happened there because there was also some chatter, I think, when it was published by Collins Crime in 1960 as to The Underdog being the titular story of that collection. And I can kind of see why, as we already alluded to, this is a very long short story. You know, it's hard to judge by page counts because obviously they differ from edition to edition, but I believe that this is longer than Christie's shortest novella, which would be Triangle at Rhodes. Yeah, uh, I think so too. In fact, you know what? I do in fact have them in the same edition because I'm, I'm of course reading from my Poirot Omnibus, which I love so much. And I'm looking here and Triangle at Rhodes clocks in at approximately 22 pages. The Underdog is 50 pages long in this edition. And this is an edition with very small font because it had to fit 51 Poirot short stories and novellas, those four novellas, into it. So this is truly novella length. It really could have been categorized as a novella if it had ever appeared in a collection named thusly, but it hasn't. It's always appeared as a quote-unquote short story, despite its length, which is interesting. Yeah, we might get to this in a little bit, but it might be unnecessarily long. (laughs) It might be. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, and maybe that's why it never really graduated to true novella form, because it doesn't feel like it needs to be as long as it is. And that wasn't the case for all four of Christie's novellas. Actually, it wasn't the case for, I think, almost any of them. There was one in there that felt a little stretched out, if I remember correctly. But yeah, this is a curious story, and I don't remember reading it before, so I was I was surprised by my read of The Underdog. And by the way, that is the under space 
dog, even though when we get to the Suchet adaptation, they saw fit to make a compound word out of it and just call it the underdog. Yeah, it's a little bit, you know, we talk sometimes about spoilery titles. I mean, you know that I love when a title is actually a clue. And we do have that here. And I, again, fast forward if you haven't read Tape Measure Murder, a Miss Marple short story that we covered already. But that one, too, by the end of it, uh, to my chagrin, I realized that I should have found the title more spoilery than I did. (laughs) And I felt the same way here, actually. It didn't ruin anything for me. But that is a clue. If a mystery is called The Underdog, you should really be looking for The Underdog in the story because that just may be our murderer. Mm, Yeah. On that note... Who's murdered? Yes, who is our victim in the story, Catherine? Yes. Is that your question? That's my question for you, Kemper. (laughs) Our victim is Sir Reuben Astwell, who is coshed over the head at night in his estate of Mon Repos. Very idyllic sounding country estate there. It sounds very restful and mm-hmm. dreamlike, perhaps a little too restful for Sir Reuben because he dead. He very, very dead. Yeah, very much coshed. <laughs> so, and who are our uh, suspects in this murder of Sir Reuben Astwell, Catherine? Well, we actually, we started with somebody who's already been arrested for committing this crime. It's Charles Leverson, who's his nephew. And the assumption is that he done it, except for the fact that maybe not everybody agrees with that assessment. Absolutely. One person who may or may not agree with that assessment is the person who comes to Poirot for help. And she is not coming on her own behalf, which is what we usually get when someone goes into Poirot's consultation rooms. This would be Lily Margrave. And she is going on behalf of her boss, who is Lady Astwell. That would be Sir Reuben's wife. And we'll get to her in a second. But Lily is sort of a combination companion and secretary to Lady asked well and actually seems to be treated quite well as though she is one of the family. That's what she says and that relationship is borne out in the course of the story. Yeah, we should mention probably just up front so it doesn't get in the way of the plot that she, uh, Lady Astwell thinks that Lily is from a good family and so she holds herself in a way that represents Lady Astwell well, I mean, well <laughs> As so, Lady Aswell puts it, Lily Margrave is a lady. And very charmingly, she says, and I am not. <laughs> yeah. Because why, Catherine? What did Lady Aswell do before she married Sir Ribbon? Lady Aswell uh, was an actress. Oh, and- what? An actress, I do say, <laughs> and we should get warning signs going off in neon stage lights. Do um, I need to do the sound again? Please don't. But <laughs> <laughs> um, she really does want Lily to go to Paro for help because she fundamentally doesn't believe that their nephew killed her husband. And she has a very strong guess as to who she thinks actually did. That begs the question, who does she believe did it? Well, that would be Owen Trefusis. No relation to Emily Trefusis of Sittenberg Mystery fame, I suppose. And he is the secretary to Sir Reuben Astwell. And Lady Astwell is just convinced that he killed her husband. You know, we'll get into this, but she has nothing concrete to back this up. She just is relying on her, oh yes, feminine intuition. We have two more suspects. Who might they be, Catherine? We have Parsons, the butler. 
but of course. <laughs> and then we have Victor Astwell, who is Sir Astwell's business partner and brother who has a famously hot temper. Indeed. And I will just say this up front before we get into the world as it appears to be and get on over to our clues. I'll save this because I wouldn't want to spoil anything. But this short story, I think, is remarkable for all of the red herrings that it has, which might make an astute reader believe that there are some classic Christie tropes going on here. There are a few classic Christie tropes at play, but there seem to be a whole lot more. And I thought that this was actually a really fun story to be reading at this point in our review of the canon, because we're just so well-trained at this point. And I had, you know, alarm bells and little sensors and whatnot going off, just, just little klaxons in my brain, if you will, all over the place during this 50 page foray <laughs> into a Poirot story. So lots of fun to be had here in the world as it appears to be. As we mentioned, Lily goes to Poirot on behalf of Lady Astwell. This is a very familiar setup in a Poirot short story. Notably, though, on a little meta note, this story is not narrated by Captain Hastings. We have a third person narration here. And I think we should just note again the early date at which it was written, which was 1926, because I think that's significant because the tone of this short story is weird. And the way that Poirot in particular is portrayed in this short story is odd. There's this jocular sense of Poirot. He's almost a figure of fun in a way that we certainly don't get in the much more muted third-person narration of Poirot stories in the novels, say, in her mid-career and even late-career novels. There's a lot of comedic hijinks here that Poirot engages in, and the narrator, this third-person presence, almost is making fun of him at a slight remove. And it feels Hastings-like, and it seems as though Christie was in the mode of being Hastings and Except having... Hastings is mentioned in it. He is mentioned in it, but the thing is, it works really well when Hastings is poking fun at Poirot because there's the affection and it's just Hastings and we love Hastings. This narrator is a little feisty and kind of mean. I didn't love the absence of Hastings, but with the jocularity inserted into the story and the way that it was being narrated, it did not totally work for me. So I think that perhaps the early date of publication might help explain that because I think she hadn't settled into a third person point of view for Poirot yet, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously just theorizing here, but it is a curiously told Poirot short well, story. And it feels also, like it's um, an awkward transition point. We do also mention it occasionally that it's kind of rare to get a very physical Poirot, but here we get Poirot crawling on the floor. Oh my God, he is so physical and he's mincing around. He is making faces, doing all sorts of weird things. He kind of moves into these people's house. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's really bizarre. Again, it's a much more comedically presented Poirot than we usually get. And it feels right. a little bit like it reminded me of when David Suchet, he talked about how when he met Rosalind, she said, well, the important thing is that we can never be laughing at Poirot. We always have to be laughing with him. The jokes can't be at his expense. He either has to be in on the joke or there shouldn't be a joke at all. It feels a little bit like in this specific story, the joke is a little bit at Poirot's expense. And I have some textual support for that as we get into it. So it was just bizarre. Tonally, it's 
very odd. I, so I completely, completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, the person that we do get is George. Yes. Here spelled without the S. We just talked in our third girl episode about the inconsistency of that, how usually it seems Poirot says George with an S and then the narration refers to him as George. But here Poirot refers to him as George a lot because George is very featured in this story and the narration refers to him as George. So yes, the inconsistency continues. And I think this might be one of the first stories in which George is featured, if not the first, because the way he's introduced, it almost feels as though perhaps he hadn't been in a story before because there's a slight explanation as to, oh yes, he's, you know, his valet. Poirot opened the door and called to his valet. And then he says, my good George, prepare me. I pray of you a little valise. I go down to the country this afternoon. Very good, sir, said George. And then the narrator says he was an extremely English looking person, tall, cadaverous, and unemotional. And I feel like that's more description than we ever get of George when he appears in future We might get more stories. George in this story than we get anywhere else, actually. Yeah, including even Third Girl. Right, yeah. which, which we just read. He is very much a part of the story because, as you mentioned, this is quite a long stay in the country, and George is attending on him the entire time. So, and he I, gets to stab him. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. All right. So we are still, though, at the beginning of the story in Poirot's rooms and Lily Margrave is there. She's come on behalf of Lady Astwell. Sir Astwell has been murdered. Their nephew, Charles, has been arrested. And Lily is very elegant. She's very pretty. She looks like a Lily. She's just very put together. But it seems like she's lying to Poirot in that she has to assume her boss's stance, which is that, yes, Charles didn't do it, and we want you to investigate. It's very obvious to Poirot that Lily thinks that Charles did, in fact, do it, and that she does not want him to investigate. And because of that disconnect... Poirot agrees to go yeah. to the estate with George and look it's into things. Almost out of, it's almost out of spite. Yeah, we saw that just in the last short story that we covered, right? The Cornish mystery. Remember where it was because of the weirdness of the person who came to consult with him and he couldn't understand you know, their stance as to the mystery mm-hmm. that he also was intrigued. So this is something right. that's very much in keeping with Poirot. No, I think that's it. I think that's an interesting point too. So yeah, he goes there to this estate and Lady Astwell doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> no. She pretty much is just like, yeah, Owen Trefusis did it, not Charles. But also she doesn't actually know that. And also she had a blowout fight with her husband the same night of the murder. They said very awful things to one another. She's very filled with regret over that. She um, also manages to casually drop the information that she inherits half of her husband's fortune, as does her nephew Charles. So if we're going by inheritance, spoiler alert, but this is the first red herring here, Mm -hmm. which in Christie inheritance is always key, except when it's not. And, you know, we should be laser focused now on Lady Astwell and perhaps Charles. I mean, it would be a great double bluff, right? If he turned out to actually be the culprit, Christie's certainly done that before. So an astute reader is not ruling him out. And from the get go, the inheritance seems to be pointing to those two. Absolutely. And Paro, you know, they put him up in the house and it's a mansion, but it's plain, right? It's red brick with a tower. Mm -hmm. It gets a very slight description, especially for how long 
and how many pages we go on to spend in this brick edifice. Yeah. And so the reason Charles was arrested was because he also had been heard having an extremely loud argument with his uncle while he was incredibly drunk on the same night. And there was a giant thud, which was heard by Parsons, whose bedroom was on the floor below Sir Astwell's office. So this is like a weird technical thing where you almost wish... I mean, you don't need a map because it's simple enough, but there's a tower. There's a room at the top of a spiral staircase that is like a bonus bedroom Mm -hmm. where Aswell often slept the night, probably when he was having screaming fights with his wife. Right. And below that is his office. And then below that is where Parsons the butler stays. Right. And then there is a a hallway of bedrooms on the same level as where Parsons's bedroom is basically. Mm -hmm. And we will get into that a little bit, but yeah, honestly a diagram wouldn't have been out of place in this story because there is a lot of emphasis on the layout of these rooms and, and it actually is not irrelevant to the solving of the mystery. So Mm -hmm. Um, I guess you just wanted this story to be even longer, Catherine. I really didn't, Kemper. (laughs) (laughs) But a diagram would have just um, actually minimized that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're reading a 50-page short story, what's a 51-page short story? So Owen Trefusis, the secretary to Sir Astwell, he, you know, had been screamed at by uh, his boss for nine years. So he is a longtime, long-suffering employee. You know, we definitely get the sense that uh, Sir Reuben Astwell was just an abusive person in general, but certainly an abusive employer to Owen Trefusis. And when Sir Astwell's body is discovered the morning after he's murdered, he's lying on the floor, but Mm -hmm. the blood splatter in the room doesn't really make a lot of sense because the blood splatter is on the desk where he presumably was seated at some point during the night and not on the floor. So basically, he seems to have been conked on the back of his head, which would have caused him to fall into his desk, but then somehow he kind of slumped sideways onto the floor. And it's not exactly clear how that happened or why that happened. No, there's a weird detail about how the chair is much lower than the desk. The implication is just that if he had been killed in the manner that he seems to have been killed and was in fact killed, which is being bashed on the back of the head, he would have slumped forward and been supported by his desk. And the blood splatter supports that blocking of the murder as well. But then it's like, okay, but how did he end up slumped on his side on the floor? Because he would have just been, you know, slumped over his desk a la fast forward. If you haven't read the murder at the vicarage, but Colonel Prothero, right. Whose head is on the desk. He's not leaning on the desk, but you know, we've seen bodies on desks before. They don't all have to fall to the floor, but this one did somehow. So we're going to figure out how, and Poirot very much wants to figure out how he sinks his teeth into this mystery. And, you know, at first lady Aswell is just thrilled to have him there. No one else is really all that thrilled. (laughs) And I have to say, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I was tickled by the fact that eventually he even wore out his welcome from Lady Astwell because he's here for a while now. And the first phase of his visit is an investigative one and a very active investigative one. So the first thing he does is that he asks if there are any hotels nearby and he finds out that there are two. There's a golf hotel and then another 
another uh, hotel that also seems to by cater. the train station. Yeah, seems to cater to all those lovers of golf. Christie had a very complicated relationship with golf. Let us never forget the role that it played in the dissolution of her first marriage. Which, let's also keep in mind when this story was being written. I mean, if the story was published in 1926, this was actually at the height of all of the golfing that was happening in mm. her domestic circle with her first husband, Archie Christie, actually, <laughs> when things were pretty much falling apart. So that's interesting. Is interesting. Um, the fancier hotel didn't have anyone suspicious check-in. Right. But then the much lower class hotel, de classe, if you will, which the proprietress of the first hotel is like, ugh, I guess you could go ask at that hotel if you must. And Poirot does, in fact, go to the lower class hotel. Um, and they did have some suspicious people um, who basically were out and about late at night around the time when a murderer would have had to have been out and about coshing Sir Astwell over the head. And the specific person at this hotel who was um, not in his room at the key time in question is a Captain Humphrey Naylor. So that is a new suspect who we get in the middle of this story. And then it gets weird, Kemper. (laughs) Just going to be honest. (laughs) Because Poirot keeps trying to figure out what color Lily's dresses are. And part of the reason why she wears a pale green is because then she does look like a Lily because she has blonde hair. So it turns out she was wearing a pale green dress. So he gets it from a housemaid and then he cuts out a piece of it. Then he gets Georges to stab his hand, literally, (laughs) <laughs> with a needle. But he insists on sterilizing it first. He does. Which, which was maybe the most in-character moment of Poirot's in this entire story, actually. Everything else is a little cuckoo bananas. Right. So then he bleeds his own hand onto this scrap of Lily's dress. He dries it out. Then he shows it as evidence to Lily that she was in the tower room. And she doesn't believe him because she basically was like, my dress doesn't have a tear in it, which like obviously it didn't because he ripped a chunk out of it so that he could (laughs) dump his own blood onto it. (laughs) But she finally admits uh, she was there, but it was right after Charles had left, which also clearly was after Sir Aswell had been offed. And it turns out that Captain Naylor is... Lily's brother, and he'd been robbed of a gold mine in Africa by Aswell. I mean, this is my second of the red herrings, because it's like, you know, when Chrissy starts talking about hijinks having to do with mines in Africa, that often the murder hinges on this, right? I'm not really spoiling anything too specific, but there is some hijinks involving mines in A Pocket Full of Rye and also Hercule Poirot's Christmas. So she would go on to use this sort of thing to great effect, but not so here. This is completely a red herring. Yes. So Lily has broken into the safe in Astwell's office, but she already saw that he was dead, but she didn't really care because she was looking for documents that showed that he'd basically ripped this mine out from under her beloved brother. So she just didn't say anything that her employer was dead on the floor. (laughs) 
Yeah, she's like, I kind of made sure that he was definitely dead. And then I was just like, I can't really tell anyone about this right now. I can't deal with this. So I went to bed and then I just acted really surprised in the morning. And she's like, you think terribly of me, don't you? And I was thinking, yes, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Yeah, and she's also the reason why her brother was not back in the hotel, because he was meeting with her. Right. So Poirot then goes to, oh, we've got another red herring here, Catherine, and I mean, this Uh, one just warms my heart. (laughs) Or perhaps it actually, you know, makes my heart feel a little cold and arrhythmic. Cough, cough, Oh, yes. Poirot goes to Harley Street to meet with someone, and don't worry, Poirot is fine. He is not feeling poorly. This someone is a psychotherapist slash hypnotist, a mesmerist, perhaps Mm -hmm. we should call him, who comes to the estate to hypnotize Lady Astwell. And I just have to pull out the hypnosis sequence because it is the most cliched, laughable, ridiculous representation. It it says, you know, you're getting sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) Like when I was younger, my sister, who's a few years older than me, and I used to always try to hypnotize each other because we thought it was funny. And I think it sounded very much like the (laughs) hypnosis that Lady Aswell undergoes. This is Dr. Cazalet, by the way, Mm -hmm. our hypnotist. It's getting late. You are sleepy, very sleepy. Your eyelids are heavy. They are closing, closing, closing. Soon you will be asleep. His voice droned on low, soothing, and monotonous. Presently, he leaned forward and gently lifted Lady Astwell's right eyelid. Then he turned to Poirot, nodding in a satisfied manner. That's it. That's it. And then she's hypnotized, and then she's like bringing up all of these subconscious memories and images. Okay. (laughs) And this isn't a trick. This is meant to be a real episode of hypnosis that actually bears fruit for the investigation. Yeah, because this guy says you're getting sleepy, very sleepy. And then she's like, yep, I am. And then also now here, let me tell you about this figure that I saw behind the drapes (laughs) in the tower room while I was having a fight with my husband. Yeah, she saw someone hiding in that room while she was fighting with her husband. And she also mentioned they're trying to figure out, like, why is she so convinced that Owen Trefusis did it? And she does remember that when her husband was yelling at Mr. Trefusis after dinner while they were all having coffee, that Mr. Trefusis had his hand around this paper knife. This is what she says. How hard he is grasping it. His knuckles are quite white. Look, he has dug it so hard in the table that the point snaps. He holds it just as you would hold a dagger you were going to stick into someone. So that seems to be why she subconsciously observed this, but didn't even realize that she was observing it. So that is the source of this feminine intuition from which she thinks, well, he was so angry that he must have done it. You could call this a spoiler at this point in the story. To be fair to Christy, this is happening, I'd say, about 80% of the way through the story. And this is where perhaps we should remind ourselves of what the title of the story is, that it is called The Underdog. But in the moment, it does seem as though it's explaining her prejudice against Owen Trefusis, not necessarily revealing the fact that he must be the murderer. (laughs) Right. After all this, Poirot realizes that in her hypnotic state, she meant not the drapes to the windows, 
Because that would have been the obvious answer because it's another red herring, right? That a burglar could have come in. Mm-hmm. So it's not the drapes to the windows that she is subconsciously remembering. It's the drape that goes in front of the staircase to the turret. Right, to the little bonus room, that office. So someone was actually hiding the, the there. AD, the, the ADU. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was attached, so I don't know if we can call it the ADU, but yeah, the, the airy. So right. at this point, you know, it's not exactly clear who did it. Again, you could make the argument that it seems as though the evidence is pointing toward Owen Trefusis, which is interesting given Lady Astwell's subconscious observations. But let's uh, take a look at some clues as we bridge on over into the world as it actually is. We've already dispensed with some of those red herrings that might lead a reader astray. And let's just say this, the fact that Lady Astwell is an actor, this is why Christie is tricky and Christie is Christie. That is not always as meaningful as we joke it is. Because in this case, I hate to tell you folks, it is not important. So kudos (laughs) to Christie for really making me think that Lady Astwell was going to have something to do with this. She, in fact, is not. But you know who we should also never underestimate in addition to actors? Who, (laughs) Catherine? Because I think that I'm actually now contractually not allowed to (laughs) say this clue. I think that this one has to go to you. (laughs) Clue number one, never underestimate the help. And as we've talked about before this should just be a life lesson do not be a jerk to waiters or nurses or anybody who is in any position to take care of you don't be a jerk to your parents i mean like the lesson here could also just be don't be a jerk should be a good lesson but also you know if somebody is beneath you and you're trying to tread on them I would be a little bit wary about that, you know, if you don't want, you know, for example, your food spit in or I don't know, let's say getting coshed over the head. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I mean, we have three members of the help who are featured in this story and one of them, it's noted that would be Lily Margraves is treated very well. Mm-hmm. And Parsons the butler is an extremely upstanding and exquisite specimen of his class. He is, certainly doesn't seem to be downtrodden in any way whatsoever. There's really only one member of the quote-unquote help who seems to be having a hard time of it. And that, of course... But he's also, like, respected. He's supposed to be, like, a very good private secretary to... He's, but you he's know. not respected by his employer, by his Correct. boss. And the others are. You know, the others really are. I mean, Lily's boss is Lady Astwell, and Parsons serves the family, and everyone seems to at least treat him no worse <laughs> than they treat the help in general. But Owen Trefusis really is abused on a regular basis, uh, you know, verbally, emotionally by his boss. So that's interesting. Huh. Yeah. So clue number two has to do with timing, and this is, of course, a classic Christie trope. There is a a major focus on timing in addition to the sort of layout of these rooms as Poirot is going through his investigation. And 
you know, sometimes in Christie, the timing actually is key. You know, we have those temporal obfuscations where there's a time shift. Um, mm-hmm. And we have something similar here, but I think in general, the deduction that we can make is that if there's all this emphasis on, well, the murder could have only happened within this sliver of time based on the blocking of the rooms and who was going in and out of the rooms, that's all as things appear to be. And the answer is going to be, both more complicated and more simple than that, which is, well, maybe people weren't entering and exiting as everyone assumed they were, which makes the timing of when the room was empty or when people were coming in and out to not play out as everyone is assuming that it is as we're going through the investigation. So we should just be, I think, very clear on who has been observed by as many people as possible going in and out of this tower room. If people haven't been observed, for example, leaving, Maybe we shouldn't assume that they have left, which would then, of course, give them all sorts of opportunity to commit this murder within the seemingly narrow sliver of time that it could have been committed. So it's actually something that I think Christy does quite often, and she does it quite well, because it it adds this element of uncertainty and confusion to the mystery, which isn't annoyingly confusing. It just kind of makes it difficult to parse your way through what exactly is going on. And when we get to to the other side of it, it's very clear because of assumptions that have been made. And I think it goes a long way toward how bedeviling so many of her mysteries really are, even these shorter ones like this. She just, she does it incredibly well. It's one of those things I think she makes it seem easy, but I think it's hard to do these sort of timing obfuscations based off of assumptions as well as she does. I think it's akin to the list clue if that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. we've talked Mm -hmm. obviously about that in many other episodes, that the list clue is also, if there's a list in Christie, there's something wrong in it. Right. There's something being hidden in the middle of it, or there's something, you know, there's some sort of obfuscation going on. And I think if we're presented as we are here with, well, from this time to this time, this person came in and then they left. And then this person came in and then they left, you know, right and after that. An, and this, this is per- the blocking of the hall and the blocking of the yeah. hall means that this person can't see this at this time, close to midnight. And clearly like at this point, uh, somebody had looked exactly at a clock. When that happens in these stories, you should just be aware that something is not what you think it is. There's going to be a trick. There's going to be a trick of some sort that, that makes this layout or I guess this chronology, not as it seems even in a mystery as persnickety and busy as death on the Nile. Right. I mean, death on the Nile Mm -hmm. still relies on a lot of, and then you go here and go out here, but but like there's still, there are, there are some assumptions that are being made that are not borne out that actually do help simplify matters and make, the murderous plot possible. So we have a much simpler version of that going on here. Right. Much like never underestimate the help. If somebody's telling you too much information, it's usually a sign they're lying. Indeed. Speaking of obfuscation, clue number three, lighting. We're going through all the hits here, folks. There's a long conversation about the lighting in the office and there's pretty much like a banker's lamp on desk because the shade of that casts downward, right? So that you can read everything else ends up in shadow. And as we are very aware from reading Christy, if there is a comment about the lighting, you should also be aware of what that is suggesting. And it's actually kind of related to the timing, but 
it doesn't matter because I think the deduction that you can make is, did anybody actually notice he was dead? Sir Aswell? Or maybe it was possible for someone to pop their head in and given the poor lighting, not realize right away that Sir Mm -hmm. Aswell was dead. Perhaps our prime murder suspect, the nincompoop nephew Charles, (laughs) say, who was rather drunk at the time. I would actually like to add... Very drunk. Yeah, very drunk. Blotto, as they say. I would like to add a fourth clue, actually, which has to do specifically with Victor asked well, um, mm-hmm. because this is such a stock character that we haven't come across for a while in Christie, but I really love it. His main characteristic is that he has a hot temper, just is a bad-tempered person. He tends to run off at the mouth. As it's put in the story, actually, what Poirot's deduction there is, he who can bark does not bite. And if Christy is describing a character in a mystery story as having a bad temper, that character will almost always turn out not to be the murderer. Because it's not that people aren't always as they seem. I mean, we have our Maya Angelou, Oprah Winfrey Clue. When people show you who they are, believe them. But we also have the opposite, which is that people in murder mysteries often wear masks, right? And they seem to be very different from how they portray themselves or from what they hold themselves out to be. And if someone doesn't have the ability to rein in their temper, that usually means that they're not going to be the kind of clever criminal that's required (laughs) for an intricate mystery, especially I think in early Christie. And we've just, we've seen that character so many times. We just haven't seen it recently where someone is foul mouthed or it's a little bit the angry young socialist as well. I was about to say, it's exactly like if you were like young and um, handsome and a mouthy socialist or you're Irish (laughs) often, they almost never actually did it. So exactly. Exactly. And, and Victor asked, well, really that like, that is how he is portrayed in the story. He just has this horrible explosive temper. And it's interesting because his brother or murder victim, Sir Ruben also has a pretty bad temper, but Victor's is even worse. And it's funny, but in Christie, you kind of know that that actually means that Victor has a heart of gold. <laughs> at, the, I know, at the end of the day, really it's weird, so ridiculous. It, it's, it is like a really weird through line, but... Um, He's saved you know, I, by his extremity. It's like, oh, well, if she's going full bore on his hot-temperedness, that means he's okay in the end. But Sir Ruben, who's kind of middlingly hot-tempered, that means that he's probably truly a baddie. <laughs> and maybe that well, has something to do with why he was murdered. I mean, it's also pretty much... Well, this is an odd story for that reason, too, because I would say that, again, it's the don't yell at your employees. Mm-hmm. rule that that is gonna even in a Christie story that's gonna get you but the thing with uh, Victor is that he is just always mad at everybody yeah he's not always punching down right he is punching sideways or perhaps even punching up and maybe punching down sometimes but um, or, or he's, he's just um flailing his arms to see what they hit exactly 
Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting, uh, and it's funny, like that compare contrast between the two brothers that Christy has in the text was excised from the adaptation. Cause I think it's just, it's a little odd and I think it's probably hard to convey that quirk of Christy's characterization convincingly <laughs> in an adaptation. But I think for aficionados of Christy, we can appreciate that distinction, that subtle distinction between the two brothers. So I just wanted to point that out. Catherine, what is happening here? Who did it? Well, Trefuses did it. He'd been berated all day to begin with. He'd gone into the upper level of the tower room to pick something up. He came back down only to witness the blowout fight between Sir and Lady Astwell from behind the curtain. I think the really sad thing is that Trefusis was in the tower room with his boss and then Lady Astwell came in, right? And then he was like, okay, I'm just going to head on out. And they think so little of him, right? Because he's a member of the help that they just assume that he went out the main door and that he left. But no, he went out the other door, which leads up to that little bonus room, right? Because he was picking something up there that Sir Astwell left or what have you. And then he gets stuck, right? Because Lady yeah, he's trapped. He's trapped. Yeah. And then they're having this incredibly personal, private argument. And, you know, it reminded me a little bit of when Anne Hathaway creeps up the stairs in The Devil Wears Prada and she accidentally overhears. sat there waiting for you for almost an hour. I told you that the cell phones didn't work. Nobody could get a signal out. And I knew what everyone in that restaurant was thinking. There he is, waiting for her again. This is, I, mean, I keep on making Miranda Priestly references, but she overhears you know, her boss, Miranda Priestly, having this incredibly intimate argument with her husband. Mm-hmm. And since she knows, oh no, I'm in for a world of hurt <laughs> because of that. And I think that that's what leads to her having to get the latest Harry Potter manuscript because she's basically just looking for an excuse to fire her. It's a little bit like that. I mean, he's, you could, this poor guy, he's just like standing there. And then of course he has to come out after Lady Aswell leaves. It's not really spelled out in the story, but I got the sense that Sir Aswell casts this aspersion on him that oh, you were eavesdropping and you were listening on my conversation. And I think it's like, that's kind of the final straw where he's not just berating him for doing a poor job or something related to the business of the day, but he's actually impugning his character, like his very integrity as to you're listening to us and you're, you know, trying to get information. Well, and, also and it's the, just so insulting. Also, the reality is what else could he do? He had to stay behind the curtain because like, what is he going to walk into the room? I know. I mean, he should have. He probably should have. But they fight like cats and dogs. We know this. So I'm sure they got into it right away when he was probably still up in the room. So by the time he comes down the stairs, he's stuck. And yeah, at that point, when Sir Astwell is berating him about having overheard this conversation, this argument, Owen Trefuses just snaps. And he grabs a club off the wall and he whacks his boss with it on the back of his head and his boss slumps over onto the desk. So he is leaning against the desk. And then that is when drunk nephew Charles comes whistling in. 
and Owen has to secrete himself, right? Mm-hmm. Behind presumably, I think the other curtain at that point, I guess it doesn't really matter. He's just, he's hiding in the room. We know he has two hiding places to choose from, right? Either recess, the one that yeah. leads, you know, to the upper room or the one in the window that we thought Lady Astwell was referring to before. And Charles is so drunk and the lighting is so poor that he thinks that his uncle is just sitting up on the desk. And that's why he actually is yelling at him and Charles is berating him and telling him he's awful. And he comes up to him and he puts his hand on him. And that is why Sir Aswell falls onto the ground. The body slumps over so that we have the blood splatter on the desk and then the body is on the floor. And Charles said, you know, he, he utters my God and kind of just hightails it out of there at that point. Right. And then it's just like the parade continues, right? Being, you can imagine Owen Trefuses is like, seriously, another one? <laughs> right, then, yes, because Lily, Lily goes in there and breaks into the safe. Right. <laughs> Which is a little bit, I mean, this is where you can kind of feel the fact that this is early Christie, because I remember in her autobiography, she talked about how when she reread The Murder at the Vicarage, which was just a couple of years later, how overstuffed it seemed to her. And there's just so many red herring side plots happening here that have nothing to do with anything. It's a little hard to believe. It feels a little bit like spinning plates in the air just for the sake of doing so, because you're nervous that you want the mystery to play off. And it adds page length. And it's why this not so short story feels a little loosely told, actually. I mean, it's funny. We talked about how, you know, late career Christy, like third girl, it felt like she was losing a little bit of her efficient storytelling. This feels like she's still getting her bearings as a storyteller early on in her career. Because I would like to emphasize that also Lily is in love with Victor Astwell. Oh, boy. I mean, this was also charming because the other reason why we think that Victor Aswell is not necessarily such a great person is that apparently he maybe killed someone before. I mean, that that also is oh, know, part he of why he's... He 100% admits to it pretty much and in he admits Africa. to it. Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit of a Philip Lombard moment, except this yes. is what he says. The fellow I killed was a witch doctor who had just massacred 15 children. I consider that I was justified. I'm not even going to get into the ethical specifics of that situation he brings up. It's just it, it's a questionable hypothetical scenario. Let's say that Christie very casually inserts into the story at that moment. I just I, I was rolling one, my eyes a little a bit. As a one liner, you are reading it and you're <laughs> thinking, well, I guess that would be a more interesting story than this one. Because um, it's yeah, like, what? Those like how, are going to live happily ever after, aren't they? Well, yeah, apparently. I guess so. Apparently, he's actually really nice and like protects children against child murderers by murdering. I don't know that that seems okay at all. But well, and he will... has a lot of bark, but no bite, except for murderous witch doctors, apparently. So, yeah. Papa and also, like, I have like so many questions. Like, how did he know what what is a witch doctor? <laughs> how did he know that it how was a witch doctor? How is that term doctor? being used in this story? It makes me very uncomfortable. It's I'm not sure. Very uncomfortable. I don't think that it is okay. And if we if this were a novel, which it is close to being, right? And we had to do a stuck in its timeness, I would just walk backwards with my hands up and shake my head. No, 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 no. Yeah. 
And again, this is where the title is a bit of a hint, right? Because Owen Trefusis is, of course, the underdog of this whole group of people. I mean, and, and he really is presented that way from the beginning. And that's clever. What I also think is clever is that, you know, especially as to Ariadne Oliver's feminine intuition, Poirot makes fun of it all the time. Yeah, actually, (laughs) and Lady Astwell, you know, she's an interesting character too, because she is also presented very comedically. And I think that there's a lot of fun had somewhat at her expense, but she also does, you know, say some funny things. And I, I loved this line when she first meets Poirot and she says, I believe in small men. They are the clever ones. (laughs) (laughs) But she's right. Uh, you know, and, and it was based really on that subconscious observation that was brought out through that ridiculous hypnosis well, session. Interestingly, but she's right. interestingly, what I would say is this is one of the only cases where you get an actress where it's made the point that she's an actress being right, which I think is an interesting thing because I think that one thing that actors have to do is actually be pretty observant about human behavior. And that's actually why in most Christie, they become such a threat Mm -hmm. because they're watching or mimicking other people's behavior, right? It's a good point. They're good at performing. So they're good at pretending obviously and being other than they are, but they're also good at observing and synthesizing information, which makes it very dangerous. Right. But in this case, Lady Aswell was just right. She noticed that something was wrong and she needed to fix it. And, you know, ultimately Poirot is right. So I suppose it's a sort of vindication of his ridiculousness throughout the course of the story. But again, I mean, I just want to go back to this point as to the portrayal of Poirot in the story, because it's so weird. The archness, like the the archness of the narration just really stuck out to me in a way that it hasn't in any of these other stories, even around this time. I mean, we just have all of these moments where Poirot is being kind of ridiculous. For example, there's a moment where he says, amazing, he murmured to himself completely complacently, the ingenuity of Hercule Poirot. And then another time he says, me, I know everything, declared the little man with an absurdly grandiose air. And then another time the narrator is referring to his tisans. Poirot inhaled the noxious fumes with pleasure. And as you noted, Catherine, he's crawling about on all fours. That's verbatim how it's mm-hmm. described as, it, you know, it's ridiculous. And at one point he even, quote, breaks into a fantastic little dance. And then, of course, let's just never forget how he fabricates that evidence with the dress, having his himself stuck by his valet and bleeding all over it. This is really, really bizarre behavior. We've seen him do a lot of this before. Dare I say the big four-ish. And the big four was also written around this time. We're in 1926. That is right around the time that the short stories that were then Frankenstein stitched into the big four were written. And this feels like that Poirot, actually. Right. I agree with that. And it's funny because one of the issues with the big four, right, is that it becomes essentially a weird thriller, which this is not. But but guess what, guys? There's an adaptation of this. And it's a little thriller-ish. It's a little thriller-ish. Yep. 
Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christy fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you, we're going to provide you with those seconds right now. So go to it. Thank you so much. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, so yep. this is, of course, the underdog, all one word. When criminals in this world appear and break the laws that they should fear and frighten all who see or hear, the cry goes up so far and near for underdog. 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 <laughs> I very vaguely remember that. I think it was Me on too. some sort of weird program that also showed like Scooby Doo and the Flintstones. I was looking it up too because I was like, I know I watched some underdog cartoons. It was actually only on from 1964 to 1967, but then it was clearly syndicated forever since then. And it's just one of those 60s-ish cartoons that kids watched for decades. And yeah, like it must have been on USA yes. Network Cartoon Express. I think yes. that's it. Yeah. That's almost certainly what it was probably on. So this is also a curious adaptation. It's funny. I'm going to quote from our good friend Mark Aldridge because I sort of agree with him on this one, actually. And this is what Mark had to say in Agatha Christie on screen about the underdog adaptation. The underdog perhaps only cemented the sense that the series was starting to get a little repetitive and even dull. A fairly typical country house murder, it requires Poirot and the police to initially take highly suspicious witness statements at face value in order to preserve the mystery until the final act. And while director John Bruce, who had previously worked on The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, provides some impressive depictions of central London and period, the performances feel wrongly pitched with a sense of archness, perhaps as a result of the thinner-than-usual material in a script from Bill Craig, whose previous credits include Callan and the Duchess of Duke Street in his only contribution to the series. I don't think that the archness is unwarranted, is the thing, because the story is extremely arch. This is one example where I don't think that the adaptation is inappropriate in any way. I think that it's actually largely reflecting what's going on in the text. That doesn't mean that I enjoyed it as much as I usually do a Poirot adaptation, but I also didn't enjoy the story as much as I usually enjoy a Poirot story. Right. I guess I would agree with you on that. Also overstuffed, you know? And it's funny, so we should we should mention that this was adapted in the fifth season slash series um, of the program. And yeah, so it aired in 1993. It's the second episode of that season slash series. And this is really the last season where they did all of the short story episodes. After this, they mainly were doing more of the novels because they had already covered the Poirot short stories for the most part. And they only had 50 minutes as a result to cover this 50 page <laughs> short story. So they did not really, I mean, there is some invention, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's not 
entirely faithful, but they retained a lot of those red herring side plots and the adaptation feels as stuffed as the story does as a result. Yeah. I think thriller-esque was the right word to put it. I think that the invention was trying to fix some of the flaws in this story. And what this story really needed was a deep edit. Yeah. And instead of that, then you're adding all these other plot elements into the story that are not there originally. And it's making it even sort of more complicated. I think that would be my opinion on what's going wrong here. Well, my take is that I think that there was some discomfort and understandable discomfort with how beside the point the solution to the mystery is, which really just has to do with an employee snapping finally at, you know, an employer who had been abusing him for so many years, right? Like that's it. It's as simple as that. And there's all of this other intrigue as to gold mines and romance and actors and Harley Street and just everything else that's happening over the course of this many, many weeks worth of investigation, right? And, and you know, Poirot bleeding over pieces of fabric, et cetera, et cetera. And what they did is that they actually changed the motivation for the murder, which is interesting because they don't normally do that. They did not change the murderer himself. It is still Trefusis and he's still the secretary to Sir Astwell. But rather than have it be just because he couldn't handle the abusive relationship, they changed the gold mine intrigue into this chemical polymer invention that's okay, happening. So did this remind you perhaps of a certain play? You mean black coffee? I do, because there, again, you have like a secret formula plot, right? Yeah, you know, it does at least play into the central intrigue of the story. And I think that in Christie's version of the underdog, the goldmine stuff has nothing to do with anything, right? And here, it's the same thing where Lily and her brother, who's Nailer of the goldmine intrigue, Nailer in this version is kind of an adventurer or a scientist who is involved in the development of this chemical polymer. And, you know, he basically needed funding and he went to Sir Astwell, who rejected his application, but then used the technology that he had developed to sort of farm out his work to a German company who's going to be developing the polymer. And it's not Astwell's British company who's going to be developing the polymer. And this is all explained at the very end. And it's just, it's rather confusing and really feels like an awkward denouement, which they normally don't have, I think, in these um, Suchet adaptations. Sometimes they're very long, but they're not usually boring and confusing. And I found this one to be a little boring and confusing because we find out that the issue was since Astwell wasn't going to develop the polymer himself, Trefusis was actually going to be cut out and he would have made money off of this if Astwell had just developed it in-house, even though Naylor was still being cheated out of what he deserved. It would appear that you were instrumental in the development of the invention by Monsieur Naylor. You would have become a very rich man. If it was produced by the Astwell company, but if the process was to be licensed elsewhere, as it was told to you by your German colleagues, of what value then would be your contract? Who 
of no value at all. So I guess Drefuses was going along with cheating out Naylor, but then he was ultimately cheated by his boss, by Sir Aswell, because he was in cahoots with his German company. And given that we're in the 30s, we have that, you know, seeming more nefarious than it obviously would today, for example. And it's just like, okay. And but then he's also like, well, and he was also a bully and I hated him. So it's like he was also like, well, I mean, like a, a Nazi sympathizer, I guess. And I guess a Nazi sympathizer. So the main motivation, though, is that given that Sir Astwell was dead, then that deal was not going to go through with the Germans so that Owen Trefusis would actually get this money. So it was a lucre motivation, but just an incredibly muddy one. And one that really required way too much explaining about chemical polymers than I want in an Agatha Christie's Poirot, quite honestly, especially if that's not in the text. That just seemed like a poor way of trying to fold in these side plots to make them uh, integral to the mystery. Whereas I totally agree with you, Catherine. I think what you rather what you needed to do was simplify and kind of streamline. And they didn't do that. So for that reason, I, I think it's it's not one of the best adaptations. But it's not necessarily because of the tone. Because I do agree with Mark that it is rather arch. But the story is rather arch, too. I mean, these are kind of big, larger-than-life characters, very much including Poirot, but, you know, Lady Astwell. And if anything, it's actually a little more grounded than the story. So that was, I guess, my ultimate word on the adaptation. David Suchet, you won't be surprised to learn, didn't have all that much to say about this adaptation (laughs) in Poirot and me. The one thing he did say was interesting. He wrote, the only thing I did not care for about the plot was the notion that Poirot might like to play golf. I simply did not agree. I can remember saying to the production team, Poirot does not play golf. He simply would not. To my mind, he would always be perfectly happy to watch Hastings play. And indeed, he takes some delight in the fact that his friend scores a hole-in-one to the amazement of everyone at the end of the story. But my Poirot would always prefer to watch. And he also called this one of Dame Agatha's, uh, quote, slighter stories, end quote. And he really doesn't play golf in the episode. But I think there is a little bit of a flirtation with the notion of playing golf. And I suppose even that did not sit well with David Suchet, which I understand. I totally agree with him. I think that Poirot would never in a million years go near a golf club. Oh, well, or hunting. We know that he doesn't do that. He prefers to watch people, you know, on horses and with foxes or go sit by the fire. And I can't imagine Poirot, like, not just wearing his perfect suit and polished shoes. And how would that work? on a golf course. I mean, Poirot does not play sports, especially outdoor sports. I suppose he'd be more likely to play like billiards than golf, but even that, I don't see it. Yeah, wouldn't you have to unbutton your jacket to play billiards or snooker i was well snooker they get into it in snooker like when they start doing like hiking up their legs on the table and stuff it's always like very startling (laughs) to watch snooker it's like a very involved game because they're always wearing those like dressy outfits but they're Mm -hmm. like climbing all over the table (laughs) like oh okay I, i can't see poro doing that no, I can't imagine any sport that he would play unless one considers chess or poker a sport. Or building card houses. Or building card... Well, as I said, though, like poker, like I can't imagine Poirot, for obvious reasons, at a card table. 
Right. Just a little bit of Suchet series trivia, too. This episode was filmed just after The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, which we covered ages ago. And um, that was the episode in which Suchet passed out while he was dressed up in his Poirot padding and sitting in the blazing sun on location in Morocco (laughs) for The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb. So he talks about how he was relieved that this episode was shot totally in London and he could be in a more temperate climate. And Yeah, I think that I've experienced the adventure of the Egyptian tomb recently. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, oh, am I actually wearing a Poirot suit and not a tank top? Catherine is in an Egyptian tomb of sorts at the moment. Yes. (laughs) It's called her non-air-conditioned house. (laughs) Yes, my non-air-conditioned house. Um, And also, it's really funny, the other day I was outside and there were two of those flying, like, blue beetles that remind you of, like, scarabs. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is great. Maybe the Egyptian gods are trying to tell uh, you something. Or locusts next. If you see like Osiris or something or some or like strange hieroglyphics start appearing. Isn't there a Sherlock Holmes that hinges on these little like hieroglyphs that appear? So what do you make of it, gentlemen? This thing. Have you had time to study it? Absurd little figures dancing in a line. It's a childish prank. Why do you attach importance to something so trivial? I don't, Mr. Holmes. I, I never should. No, no, it's, it's, it's my wife, you see. So let us know if that happens. But not to sell this episode short also, I mean, I think there were some changes that they made that were actually quite good. For example, I thought it was interesting. They had this moment where a housemaid pricks her finger accidentally on the knife point that Trefusis stuck into the table. And Poirot very resourcefully uses her bloody handkerchief. He presses it against the green dress for his ruse having to do with Lily. That is much better than I'm really glad that I didn't have to see poor David <laughs> Suchet getting his finger stuck with a needle because it really is just a well, bridge too also far. His response is basically like, ouchie, like you stabbed me too hard. I know. <laughs> I know. It's awful. I also thought it was legitimately funny. The adaptation makes fun of the hypnosis sequence in its own way because... Well, we Ms. should mention it's Miss Lemon. Oh, you're not trying, Mr. Poirot. Miss Lemon, I am aware that you are fully qualified in the practice of the hypnotics. I, I do not dismiss that, but, you know, with a person whose character is so forceful and whose intellect is so powerful... But think how useful it would be to you in your investigations. Very well, if it will please you. Proceed. Relax. Relax. Your eyes are feeling heavy. You are going to sleep. What on earth's going on? Please, Captain Hastings. And that is, by the way, I mean, that is a character runner, right? Where she is very much interested in the occult. And I think it's very believable that Miss Lemon would be trying her hand at hypnosis. So the episode opens with her trying to hypnotize Poirot. It does not go well. But then she actually does hypnotize Lady Astwell. And that also gives a good excuse for Pauline Moran to be around at the end of the episode. And she, too, is watching when Captain Hastings makes his hole-in-one, which is very delightful. I mean, the look of just sort of accomplishment, the childlike look of accomplishment on Arthur Hastings's face is just a sight to behold. 
the end. This too, I just thought was legitimately funny, but as they always do, they kind of bring the action up so that rather than Poirot learning about most of this after the fact, he's a guest at the house of Sir Astwell and, you know, they're involved. There's a golf tournament happening and this is all par for the course if you will, har, uh, at this har, point har. <laughs> for the series. But one of the reasons why Poirot is so excited to go to the Astwell's estate is that Sir Ruben Astwell collects Belgian miniature bronzes. And Belgian miniature bronzes, they are the finest in the world. Why is that? Because they are the largest. And they are rather large miniatures. <laughs> so just the idea of these large miniatures that are like, they're these like figures that are just like sitting on the desk in Sir Astwell's office. It's, it, it is pretty amusing. And, and Poirot is cooing over them. And, you, and Sir Astwell obviously doesn't care about them. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to sell them to the highest bidder. They can melt them down for all I care. And Poirot is horrified. You know, there are moments that are good in it, but yeah, overall, I don't think it's very memorable. No, no, it's not great. I mean, I was also happy that at least Miss Lemon wanted to figure into the resolution of this mystery by way of occult or occult adjacent powers, because it reminded me of how at the end of Peril at End House, Poirot just basically, without even giving her any warning, says, and now you're going to conduct a seance, Miss Lemon. And she's like, come again? Right. <laughs> but she was very much into this, so that made me happy. And she delivered, as she always does. I know. Very efficient, our Miss Lemon. I think that is the underdog. Again, just a curious Poirot story within the greater oeuvre. I was not expecting it to be as curious as it was. You know, and I think the fact that she wrote it around the same time that she was doing the big four, and it was in that almost like transitional state of Poirot where we were going from Mysterious Affair Styles, The Murder on the Links, like super early Poirot to what he would become. You can feel the fluidity of the character in the story because he is not treated or portrayed the way that she would come to treat and portray him or in, in the established way that she would land on, I think, in just really a few short years within the 30s when she had that amazing run of Poirot after Poirot where like she really did firmly just establish that character. This is mm-hmm. this is different and that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to suggest everybody go run out and read it right now, but again, if you're being comprehensive, it certainly has an interesting, different perspective than a lot of other stories, I think. Well, you know I'm a big fan of the big four, Catherine, so... Yes, we can... Uh, it might be, it might be, dear listeners, our biggest point of disagreement. So. Our, our biggest point of contention. Which of those two novels truly deserves the lowest rank, but we're getting close to, I think, having some titles or at least one title usurp those two for the dubious honor of lowest ranked Christie. So, um, you know, maybe that will become a less important disagreement between us in the coming months. Well, and I hope that uh, the next novel that we read is actually going to show up pretty high. Don't you think? I hope. I think it's going to show up very high. Yes. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about how we're hopeful that maybe we're going to break into the top 10. I, you know, we really have no idea if that's going to happen, but I think this novel is going to do very well. What are we covering in our next episode, Catherine? Endless Night. (gasps) Endless Night. 
Endless Nights. Truly, I think, one of the last of the Christie greats that we're going to cover on this podcast. So this is a big one. We're very, very excited. Mm-hmm. We're always excited to read any Christie, but we're especially excited about this one. And we look forward to talking to you again on that episode. But in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you because we always want to hear from you. You can find more content from us over on our Patreon account. That is at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. And you can message us over there. And there's a lot more back and forth on that account than we have the room for in our regular episodes. So if that sounds enticing to you, head on over there. Uh, you can also Rebecca. If you guys are tempted by that. (laughs) We just covered Rebecca the text and we will in our next episode on Patreon be covering Rebecca the movies slash television adaptations. uh, Four of them, in fact. And we're not even going to tell you which four because you're going to have to find that out over on our Patreon site if you care. So take a gander if you wish. Otherwise, you could email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Bobcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we really would appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate and review us because it helps other people find the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.